Welcome to the Shalom Hartman Institute podcast. I'm Alan Abbey. Our new series focuses on the theme, A Time for War, A Time for Peace, the summer 2014 topic at the Hartman Institute. This program was recorded June 30, 2014, as Rabbi Daniel Hartman gave a lecture to nearly 300 lay leaders and rabbis. At the end of his talk, Daniel reports to the crowd that the bodies of three Israeli teenagers who had been missing for several weeks were found near Hebron in the West Bank. He calls up Rabbi Ed Feinstein, recites a special version of the El Malay Rachamim prayer, and then leads the audience in Hatikva. When rabbis and lay leaders in North America study the same curriculum and are able to work together, the chance of us making a real difference and changing the narrative and hopes and aspirations of our communities changes exponentially. The first is to delve ever more deeply into what being Jewish in the state of Israel means. What is it that we're talking about? What is the nature of this experiment and hopefully this experiment which will last for many, many years? What is, as my father coined it in the, in the early 70s, what is the Torah of Israel? What does it mean? And how does the particular reality of sovereignty shape and influence the way we understand who we are and who we want to be? And while many of you know and have experienced the I Engage curriculum, which is a flagship of that dimension, and it's a curriculum which guides both our work in North America and our work here in Israel, that's only one small part of the overall research agenda of this institute. The second one, which is a new one which has been emerging over the last number of years, is how do we talk about Judaism and Israel to leaders of other faith communities. As increasingly different groups from other faiths are coming to the Institute and asking, could you be our Beit Midrash for Judaism too? And how you speak in that context is a different Torah and it's something that we're working on developing and refining. And the third, which I want to focus on tonight, um, given where you've come from, is what is the nature of a Torah of North American Jewry? What is it that defines and shapes the nature of Jewish life, both prescriptively and descriptively? And as you all know very well, if you want to engage in a Torah for North American Jewry, there isn't going to be one monolithic Torah. You're going to need a Torah for those who are engaged. And there's a spectrum of more engaged and less engaged. And you also need a Torah for the non-engaged. And you make a profound error when you see everybody or there's only a need for one. Because a Torah for the engaged will push you ever higher and might turn out to be completely irrelevant for the Torah of the non-engaged. And how do you inspire a Torah for the non-engaged? And if you spend all your efforts there, you might discover that those who are here and around the table are never serviced. 
I want to go on a journey this evening. Something that I'm going to argue is an unending journey, and towards the end of my remarks, I'm going to explain or elaborate why I think that's a very important category. As to who are the Jews? Who are we? And I'd like to talk and tell a 3,000-year-old story and to try to understand who we are and to put forth a number of concepts and categories which I hope will help us understand who we are and where we want to go. I've been working on this very intensively now for over a year um, and um, we need handles and tools because in many ways part of our experience is to feel that there is something unprecedented about our reality. And when we compare it to just a decade or two, or maybe two, three decades ago, there is something that's dramatically shifted. For a while, we spoke about the primary challenge being Jewish continuity. Who is a Jew? Someone even came up with a clever definition. Who is a Jew? He or she whose grandchildren will be Jewish. The truth is, that's one of the most insulting definitions of who is a Jew. It's one of the most insulting definitions. And now, we understand that. Because continuity asks, I am X. And the simple question is, how do I enable my children or ensure that my children will be X? Because it's self-evident that they will be X or that they ought to be X. And the question is, what's the mechanism to get them to be an X? But what makes or gives us a feeling of unprecedentedness in our contemporary reality is that the issue is not Jewish continuity primarily. It's not how do we become X, but who are we? Continuity assumes that we know who we are and where we want to be. The experience of contemporary North American Jewish life is that there isn't any confidence or definitely not certainty as to who we are. What does it even mean today to be Jewish? Before I could talk, I don't even know what I want to continue. And I certainly know, don't know, how it is that I'm going to enable that continuity. Now there's something very important about unprecedented thinking, but also something very dangerous. When, when a reality is profoundly different, it's critical that we, we are aware of the fact that we are unschooled, untooled, that we have to think differently. That we don't just take yesterday's block and say, okay, this worked yesterday and plock it on the next generation because then you're just not, you're not seeing where they are. And to be aware of something being new and different requires of you to work much harder. But there's something destructive about unprecedented language because it tends to be catastrophic. It tends to be crisis-centered. Now we Jews do great in crises, so you know what? Now we have another crisis. 
okay, we don't have the crisis of Israel, we don't have the crisis of anti. Now we have another crisis, Baruch Hashem. But there's something inside, like you, there's a feeling of helplessness to unprecedentedness. There's a feeling of not a healthy uncertainty, but sometimes a destructive uncertainty, which moves from, it's not that I don't know what needs to be done, but that nothing could be done. I want to argue that the issue of who are the Jews and that question is not a new question. It's actually a question that at different points throughout our history we asked ourselves and part of what's unique about our people is that in many ways in a certain sense we're reinventing ourselves all the time. But while we are reinventing ourselves we are building on prior categories and that the contemporary reality is on the one hand, something new, something the product of the unique reality within which we live, a combination of modernity and post-modernity and enlightenment and an in decrease in anti-Semitism and the powerfulness of Israel and intermarriage and assimilation and, and modern identity. There's so much new stuff that's different. But it's not just that stuff. It's not just something brand new. We are actually on a chain of a conversation that started 3,000 years ago. And I want to look at different features of that conversation and what we could learn from it, what do they mean, and how does it tool us and empower us to do what we all know we have to do. And we have to make sure that this people and that this religion finds itself and finds, I don't know if it just simply continues, but is empowered to continue to reimagine itself in new and healthy ways, which by the way might not seem so healthy to one generation, but are healthy because that's what the next generation is about and that's where they are. We are the product of a people who've been walking together and thinking about this question for 3,000 years and let's start 3,000 years ago with the first answer that was given to who are the Jews. And the Bible gives a pretty surprising answer. Now remember we don't really have a clue what went on in the Bible. Historically we know almost nothing. Assuming that we actually even know we were there. <laughs> So let's say we know we're there. But who are we? Who were we? What we did and didn't do? It's very tough to know. So I'm just going to trust the biblical narrative. How did it, what did it tell about us? The biblical narrative tells us that Jews are a group of people who are a tribal ethnicity without Judaism. To be a Jew in the Bible is to be a Jewish identity was an ethnic tribal one depending on who you married or who your parent or your father was but it had very little to do with Judaism oh Judaism existed in the Bible for sure God spoke to Moses saying speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them and what did the children of Israel say no that is the Bible on one foot there was a Judaism in the eyes and mind of God, 
God fantasized about a Judaism, but Jewish identity had nothing to do with doing Jewish. You were Jewish. You were Jewish by birth or by marriage. But the Jewish people, according to the testimony of the Bible, did very, very little Jewishly. Our religion did not define our identity, or more accurately, a narrow religious conception of Jewish religion was not relevant or did not exhaust Jewish religiosity in the Bible, which was far larger and broader than simply a system of faith and belief and actions. That more narrow religious sense was not the way we understood religion. Our religion was a religion of a community who saw themselves and spoke about themselves as an ethnic tribe. Unless you think I'm being so heretical, because people get a little upset when someone says, yeah, the first definition of Judaism, Jewishness was devoid of Jewish. The first definition of being Jewish was devoid of Jewishness, which might sound a little heretical. Let's go to the, the last holy book in the Bible, the end. Someone who looked back at this thousand-year journey and said, let me tell you what I just saw. And let's go to the book of Nehemiah. Let's look at his summary of the biblical story, and we'll just read it very, very briefly. Forty years, you, God, the capital Y, sustained them in the wilderness so that they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, that's source too. Their feet did not swell. You gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted them territory. They took possession of the land of Sichon, the land of King Cheshbon, the land of Og, King of Bashan. You made their children as numerous as the stars of heaven and brought, to them, brought them to the land that you told their fathers to go and possess. The sons came and took possession of the land. You subdued the Canaanite inhabitants of the land, etc. You delivered them, both their kings and their people. You captured fortified cities, rich lands, took possession. In short, God... You delivered your side of the bargain. If there's anything we would want from you, you gave it to us. Everything that you promised, you, God, did. Then, however, in 26, defying you, they rebelled. They cast your teachings behind their back. They killed your prophets who admonished them to turn them back to you. They committed great impieties. You delivered them into the power of their adversaries who oppressed them. In their time, in their time of trouble, what did they do? They cried out to you. You in heaven heard them, and in your abundant compassion gave them saviors who saved them. But when they had relief, they again did what was evil in your sight. So you abandoned them again to the power of their enemies who subjugated them. Again they cried to you, and you in heaven heard and rescued them in your compassion time after time. You admonished them in order to, in order to turn them back to your teaching. But they acted presumptuously, presumptuously and disobeyed your commandments and sinned against your rules by following which a man shall live. They turned a defiant shoulder, stiffened their neck, and would not obey. You, God, bore them, bore with them for many years, admonished them. Your prophets did the same, but they would not give ear. So finally you delivered them into the power of the peoples of the land. This is... Nehemiah looking back and saying, this is a summary of the Bible. And it is essentially a summary of a people who were Jewish without doing Judaism. 
Now, while there was a profound disappointment in the conception of Nehemiah and in God's aspirations, Biblical Judaism actually gave birth to a very, very interesting and fascinating sense of Jewishness. Precisely because of the Biblical story, there is a sense of what it means to be Jewish today which is almost incomprehensible. There is a core tolerance. There's a core non-dogmatism. There's a core forgiving and respect which is embedded within Jewishness in which we look at different people and we don't have litmus tests. Are you a good Jew or a bad Jew? We're all bad. Are you living up to the standards? Nobody does. The biblical story, paradoxically, is not merely a story of the Jewish people's failure, but it is really a story, and I know Christianity, would, early Christianity wouldn't like this, it was a story of love, of God's love to a people and bearing them despite what they did. And that message of love, of being with you throughout this tedious ups and downs and ups and downs, shaped the core Jewish sense of accepting people for who they are of a Jewishness which is not contingent on what you believe. It's not contingent on what you do. It's not contingent on what you eat. It's not contingent on you coming to my shul. There's something very welcoming about the Jewish people. And I would suggest that that welcomingness is not just the product of a liberal, pluralistic notion of the inalienable rights of an individual to choose the religion that they yearn, I would say that it starts and it's one of the most important byproducts of the failed experiment of the Bible. God stuck with us and I have to stick with you because that's who we are. That was the first stage. And that stage, by the way, is without doubt one of the most dominant aspects that non-judgmentalism is one of the dominant features which all of us and a whole liberal Jewish community from modern orthodoxy up to secularism and to the side conservative reform, reconstructionist, renewal, post-denominational, none, sums, anything you want, simply all of the above and pick your adjectives ups, down, sideways, northwest, east or south, all of those together, that community is a community by virtue of this non-dogmatic nature to it. And one of the things that we all find so surprising about the conversation about Israel is that it's precisely that non-dogmatism which we find so absent when we come to talk about Israel, and that's why we're surprised because that's not the way we do stuff. We almost don't know how to handle our stuff because we're acting in ways that just aren't consistent with a 3,000-year-old story of treating each other differently. And so the first dimension of that acceptance, the first dimension of that Jewishness, of being Jewish without Judaism, without seeing it as sin only, we, the inheritors of that narrative, know how central it is for, develop, for developing the Judaism that we love and want to be a part of. And that's the first idea we inherited from the Bible. Stage two begins post-Nechemia. 
They start speaking about it then. But we see it, and we don't know exactly when it starts, but we know it's already there in the rabbinic period. Ethnic Judaism, alive and well. It was so core, the rabbis embrace it. And they know, and they, and they begin to, to develop this notion, which then becomes law in the Middle Ages and Rashi in the 10th century, an Israelite, even though they've sinned, is still an Israelite. An Israelite, even though they've sinned, are still an Israelite. That a convert who converts to Judaism and decides after their conversion that they want to return to idolatry, our rabbis say they're still an Israelite. They can't separate from Biblical Judaism. But a new feature begins to enter into our consciousness. And that is the notion that to be Jewish is not just simply be to, bo to be born Jewish, but to be Jewish means to do something Jewish. And by the rabbinic period we begin to see that the Jewish community is beginning to unite around some shared notion of Jewishness. Now they're not all pious, and they're not all wonderful, and the Jewish people don't keep a lot. But we can already begin to see that Jews are doing things. For the first time, we have a shared calendar. For the first time, there are certain rituals that Jews are doing. Christianity and Islam have to separate from Judaism. In the Bible, you, would, you could have been Jewish and been a Jewish Christian and a Jewish Muslim. Because, you know, what makes you Jewish is something else. Already in the rabbinic period, there's enough Judaism that requires another religious tradition to separate themselves. Because Jewishness is now not simply who you are, but it is also what you believe and what you do. Idolatry ceases to be a compelling force. Jews believe in the same God. They're beginning to form a common sitter. Jewish communities rest publicly on the Shabbat. We circumcise our children. We keep Pesach. In a certain way, the rabbis are saying, we want more. But what was fascinating about the rabbinic period is that they left the two together. They added a layer onto biblical Judaism they didn't remove it. And the two coexisted. But they planted the idea, ladies and gentlemen, it's one thing to be welcoming and accepting and non-dogmatic. It's another thing, is that all we want to be? Is Jewishness simply and only the product of who our parents were? Isn't there more that we ought to do and in the rabbinic period, you begin to see not merely an articulation of this idea which exists in the Bible, you begin to see it forming. And to be Jewish meant to be recognized as a Jew. Enough. And there was enough that we did together. In the third stage, 
Maimonides takes this a step further. And Maimonides does something that has a profound impact on who we are today. Maimonides says to the rabbis, you want us to be both biblical and you want us to take both stages. That to be Jewish is both to be part of an ethnic community and to be Jewish is also to be part of a community of practice and beliefs. Maimonides says, I don't need both. He looks at the rabbis and tastes something and says, there could be something more. I'm embarrassed by ethnicity. I'm embarrassed by building a community simply because this is who my parents were. I want something much more. I think, and he says, we could do it because he sees Jews beginning to coalesce around shared beliefs and shared practices and says, if that's the case, we could go to the next stage. And he does something remarkable. He rewrites and retells the biblical story. Jewish story in the Bible begins in Genesis 12 and God spoke to Abraham. Go forth from your native land, from your father's house, and go to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. The Jewish story begins with God turning to Abraham and telling him, I pick you, I choose you, and I am choosing your mishpacha as my people. Maimonides looks at this story and says, Yuck. That's not the story. Turn, please, to page two. Let's just look for a moment how Maimonides tells this story. After this mighty man was weaned, he began to explore and think. This mighty man, Abraham. Though he was a child, he began to think incessantly throughout the day and night, wondering, how is it possible for the sphere to continue to revolve without having anyone controlling it? Who's causing it to revolve? Surely it does not cause itself. Ultimately, he appreciated the way of truth, understood the path of righteousness through his accurate comprehension, realized that there was one God who controlled the sphere, and he created everything and that there's no other God amongst all other entities. He knew that the entire world was making a mistake. Abraham's first journey is not a journey in which God says to Abraham, Lech Lecha. It's a journey which Abraham embarks on himself, by himself, within himself, to discover the truth of faith. Now when he does this, he broke their idols, and I, I, I cut and pasted here a little bit, he broke their idols and began to teach the other, the people of the land, that it is fitting to serve only the God of the world. He overcame them through the strength of his arguments. Then the king desired to kill them. He was saved through a miracle and left for Haran. There he began to call in a loud voice to all people and inform them that there is one God in the entire world and is proper to serve him. He'd go out and call to the people, gathered them in city after city, country after country, until he came to the land of Canaan. Why does he go to Canaan? It's his journey. It's his journey of a man who sees Judaism as a religion of ideas and wants to share these ideas to the world. There is no moment in which God says, Lech Lecha. There is no moment in which God says, your people are your kids, your descendants, your seed. He is spreading the truth. When people would gather around him and ask him questions, he'd explain to each one of them according to their understanding until they too turned to the path of truth. Ultimately, thousands and myriads gather around them. These are the men of the house of Jacob. The men of the house of Abraham are not his children. 
It's a community of ideas. These are the men of the house of Abraham. He planted their hearts a great principle, composed texts about it. Then he did happen to have a kid. So he taught him Torah too. Isaac taught, but Isaac also taught others. And there was Jacob. And Jacob taught him and taught others. And he turned the hearts of all those who gathered around him to God. He also taught the children, his children. He selected Levites to be the teachers. The concept proceeded and gathered strength among the descendants of Jacob and those who collected around them until there became a nation with the world which knew God. Am Hashem. Who are the Jewish people? It's not an ethnic community at all. It's Abraham, Abraham's children, and anybody who shared the truth. Anybody who got it. Anybody who wanted to walk on this journey of ideas. Takes the biblical story and rips the page out and says, that's not, I don't need ethnic Judaism anymore. I'm embarrassed by it. This is the Judaism that I want. And you could see throughout Maimonides' writings, I've been working on this here, there is a Judaism of Abraham which appears throughout his writings in which there is no ethnic Judaism at all. And there is no difference between someone born a Jew and someone who becomes enlightened, even without converting. He tastes the possibility of something else. And he says, I don't need biblical Judaism. But even Maimonides paradoxically says, I can't fully give it up. Because the Judaism that I'm creating, and please remember this, is in a certain sense still a denomination. Most people aren't there. I'm speaking about a Judaism of ideas, but most people aren't there yet. It's still my denomination. And he knows that most Jews still haven't embodied or connected to this new Judaism. He could taste it, he could teach about it, he could write about it, but he knows that there's something there. So ethnic Judaism comes back into Maimonides. But not as something you celebrate, it's as a safety net for those Jews who don't have the larger vision of Judaism. And then we enter into the fourth stage, the fourth concept, which we begin, or we could point to it post-emancipation, post-enlightenment. We see it beginning to thrive already in the 19th century. It might, might have existed a little more in the 18th. And in this stage, there is an interesting return to a combination of biblical and Maimonidean Judaism. The Jewish people are about to redefine who is a Jew. Who are we? Who do we want to continue? On the one hand, ethnic Judaism remains alive and well. Regardless of the various dimensions and approaches to Judaism, a Jew is still someone who's born, now born from a Jewish mother. Or converted. We return to the biblical period because Judaism no longer is that which unites us. Jews are doing things completely differently. We don't have a shared Judaism anymore. And in this sense, as we enter into the 19th century, it starts feeling biblical again. It's feeling biblical because Jews 
could identify themselves at their core as someone who was born because it's harder and harder to say what it is that we're doing together. Secularism, reform, orthodox, ultimately conservative, Zionist, all of the above begin to create a cacophony of Jewish voices which it's hard to see us sharing something in common. And our core is again very, very ethnic. But with a twist. Because we're now standing on the shoulders of Maimonides. And what Maimonides began to create now becomes the dominating force in Jewish life. Because what Maimonides says is that I want Judaism to have content. I want it to be a Judaism of ideas, but now in the modern era, for there to be a Judaism of ideas, it has to be something that we do denominationally. Because we don't agree about our ideas anymore. We can't share how I respond to modernity. We can't share the way I respond to new issues of morality. We don't share what are the core ideas and traditions and rituals that we should keep. What Maimonides does is he creates the necessity for denominations. Because if Judaism is about ideas, I can't be satisfied with a biblical mode. I need more, but I can't do it together with you. I can't climb the mountain with you because you have a different mountain you want to climb and you have a different speed and a different way you want to walk. Precisely because Judaism is about more, an essential feature enters into the conversation in which Judaism has to be expressed differently. Synagogue is not where we come together. It becomes the place where we come to be separate. Not in a negative way. But as an expression of, in many ways, aspirations of the deepest sense. Now, while denominations are beginning to enter into the conversation, they have an interesting dance with ethnic Judaism. Because remember, we're still ethnic. Sometimes it serves as a corrective to the forces that divide us, and in some cases it actually even leads to a denominational ethnicity in which I define the Jews as those who belong to my denomination. If you look at the Khatam Sofer in the last source, in 1820s or so, he says, if their fate, the fate of reformed Jews, were in our hands, I would be of the opinion to separate them from our midst, to desist from giving our daughters to their sons and their sons to our daughters, so as to prevent our being drawn after them. Let their community be like the various sectarians who broke off and have left Judaism and they're gone. They living their lives and we living ours. But one of the things that ultimately stopped the sectarianism that denominationalism was hinting to was the centripetal forces of anti-Semitism and Zionism which ultimately gave the Jewish people something larger to connect to. Or an outside enemy who reminded us of that our ethnicity 
wasn't removed by our particular denomination. And then we come to our era. What makes it seem unprecedented is that we are, we've returned to the biblical period, but without the biblical safety net. Like the fourth stage, we too don't have a shared Judaism. We too aren't united by our practices and beliefs. But what makes it unprecedented is that we are the first Jews who together with our unprecedented belief, our, our unshared beliefs also do not have shared ethnicity. Matrilineal, patrilineal descent, intermarriage, the reality of millions potentially of non-Jews who see themselves as Jews and living in our communities has in fact created a community in North America in which shared ethnicity is simply non-existent as a defining feature of who we are. Now Maimonides would celebrate that in a certain sense, but it was, with, it was replaced by something else. What is it about our Judaism? And where is it that we, are, that, we, that we can envision us going? As I said, we are the first Jews who don't have shared ethnicity. None whatsoever. But it's not simply that intermarriage created a reality in which shared ethnicity is not present. Part of the phenomena of intermarriage it's a result of the fact that we don't value ethnicity. You have to marry a Jew. And the response is, why? Because. We don't value that sense that, that to be Jewish is simply the result of or primarily the consequence of sperm and eggs. Why is that a qualitative difference that I should take into account in making my choices for my life? There is no doubt that intermarriage changed Jewish ethnicity. But modernity created a consciousness in which ethnicity is simply not a value. And within that context, it becomes exceptionally difficult to argue against intermarriage because there's a value coming up against it. That seems, you're picking the wrong issue around which to build, a, to build our identity, and in this sense, the modern consciousness is so deeply Maimonidian. To be Jewish is to be something more, is a core instinct of contemporary Jewish consciousness, but the challenge in the, is that we didn't come up with that more, and we're not delivering that more. It's one thing to remove ethnicity and put something else in its place. It's another thing to have a sense that to be Jewish is something more, but not necessarily to do the work in building that which is more. Paradoxically, ethnicity became the, the victim of ethnic consciousness. And I want to, this distinction is very, very important. Ethnic consciousness is what I spoke about when I spoke about a sense of accepting, a sense of non-dogmatism, a sense of tolerance. 
contemporary Jews inherited ethnic consciousness and turned it on, on ethnicity itself. Because if I am accepting, I have to be accepting of those who are also non-ethnic. And we have found a way to maintain ethnic consciousness without ethnicity. We just don't judge you. So why do you have, if you don't have to keep Shabbos, why do you have to be born Jewish? If I accept you for the decisions you make, why can't I accept you for the decision? Whether you are Jewish to marry a non-Jew or whether you're non-Jewish who simply says, I want to be part of the Jewish people. And that consciousness of, of, of welcoming, of a welcoming nature is actually, I would say, one of the great magnets in the contemporary Jewish community. You want to belong to this community. There is something loving and welcoming about this community for whoever you are. And, and our numbers, you know, our numbers were going down, and now, you know, people are talking about 12 million, 20 million. Soon we won't need, you know, to say that there's a lost tribe in China and India, you know. But it's powerful. There's something about a religious community which is at its core non-dogmatic, but its problem is that its non-dogmatism is undermining the foundations of its own non-dogmatism. Where then are we going? And with this I'd like to conclude. Who are the Jews? And how do we think about where we're going and where we might want us to go? The first, I would suggest, is that it's, it's critical, I believe, that we maintain our ethnic consciousness. We're not going to go back to an ethnic identity. Not simply because the, the train has left the station, but because we don't value ethnic consciousness anymore. It's just not a, it's, for too many Jews, it is a step down morally and not something to aspire to. But because we're not ethnic, it doesn't mean that we have to give up on ethnic consciousness. And it might very well be that globally, ethnicity gets an ethnic conscious twist in which to be a Jew, instead of being born Jewish, becomes a decision to say, I am part of this people. The mere statement, Amecha mi Elohai whether it's done in conversion or not, when it's done within your, I want to belong to a Jewish family, I want to belong to a Jewish shul, I count, I want to be counted as one of those. Whether you're born Jewish or not born Jewish, is going to be part of our community for the decades to come. It's an ethnic consciousness in which Judaism or Jewish identity is primarily self-affirmed and volitional. But that's not where it stops. When we try to create an ethnic consciousness without content, then we have a community who could be anything, go anywhere, 
and there would be no sense to being within this community if there is no there there. If we have ethnic consciousness without any of the spirit of Maimonides in which Judaism involves some idea, some content, something, then we just simply become a club which welcomes everybody, but at the end there's no there there to which you would even want to be welcomed to. We need to rethink the idea of Maimonides and reclaim the notion of a Judaism of ideas. But here I want to add one last dimension. Precisely because of Maimonides, I would argue we have to strengthen today more than ever before the idea of denominationalism. As everybody is burying it and saying its time is over and now we are in the post-denomination, don't you get it? You're irrelevant. I would argue that the only way to save Torah is to save it within denominational categories. What do I mean by that? In biblical and rabbinic Judaism, you don't need denominations. In biblical, you don't need denominations because the core of being Jewish is being born. I don't need to separate from you because I'm united with you in, the, in, my, in a shared ethnicity. In rabbinic Judaism, as we're just beginning to form our shared system, we're sort of united in some common Torah which involves some Shabbos, a little prayer, a little calendar, a little kashrut, and all Jews accepted it that, that was the core. There wasn't a need for another layer. Maimonides says, of course you need another layer. Aspire for more. It's not just a little Shabbos. There's much more. There's great ideas and great values that should infuse you. But the minute you work in that sense, in those categories, with a modern sensibility, by definition, we will never have one Torah. Because we don't agree. If we're going to train Jews to aspire, we're going to have to have different answers to how they aspire. Now, when I speak about denominations, I'm not speaking about movements as an end to themselves, but as a reflection of the fact that there must be multiple content to what it means to be a Jew. And the answer that one person will give to what it means to be a Jew is going to be different, and we need to have different shuls which express that. And there's no reason for us to all be the same. We are making a fundamental error when we try now to sort of flatten out the discussion and say, let's create a common Torah for us all and forget our particularity. The forgetting of the particularity is not finding a higher plane, it's actually bringing us to a lower plane. And it's not even to a lower common denominator, it's to a lower nothingness. We don't agree. Why should we have the same Torah? As, as post-enlightenment modern individuals with a profound sense of our inalienable sense of self, we're going to have different Torahs for each one of ourselves. There is no better way to respond to that than through a Jewish community who thinks differently. Post-denominational thinking, I would argue, is actually a, a detriment as we move forward in trying to build a Judaism within the context of contemporary Jewish life. 
Now the challenge of each movement is to recognize that you're not, it's not about you. It's not about people, you know, is my movement strong? As if your movement is an end, a body unto itself. It's about what are the ideas that your movement stands for. And your movement will change and all the movements are changing. But yes, we need one shul where it is only matrilineal descent. And we need in one shul where it's only if you could convert you could get an aliyah. And we need another shul where the non-Jewish spouses, of course they're welcomed into the door la door ceremony. We need shuls that are orthodox. We need shuls that are conservative, reform, reconstructionist, renewal, and all of We need multiple gates as to what it means to belong to that shul. But it's not about creating some new community with some shared power of Judaism to somehow compensate for our lack of shared ethnicity. We don't have shared ethnicity, but we all agree in some what? In some nothingness. Maimonides teaches us that we have nothing to fear for particularity, quite to the contrary. If you actually want to step beyond ethnicity, you have to step beyond it with boldness, with courage, with conviction and put forth an idea and let that people be the house of the God of Jacob or the house of Abraham. Let there be these multiple houses. Now our challenge without doubt will be how do we keep and in what sense are we going to stay the same? Are we going to stay connected? If we don't have ethnicity and we don't have anti-Semitism, we don't have the safety nets that the fourth stage had as it moved into denominationalism. It might very well be that as we move forward, Jewish peoplehood is going to be secondary. It might very well be that for some, Jewish peoplehood will not be a coherent category. That might be. If it is going to be a coherent category, we're going to have to make a case for it. We're going to have to make a case for some family resemblance between the different denominations. We're going to have to make a case for why it's important and what is there because it's not going to be something that's self-evident to non-ethnic denominational Judaism. In many ways, what we're going to need more than ever before is the core instinct of the Bible. The core instinct of the Bible is that I don't judge not going to require profound pluralism, but it is going to pr require profound tolerance. If our tribal, if our denominational Torahs of excellence are going to coexist in some form of a collective, it's going to require of us to return to a conversation of tolerance and pluralism, which by the way, the contemporary conversation about Israel is showing we are profoundly inept at. We thought we had that one down. We thought, oh, ultra-Orthodox, we just got to teach you something. There's something you don't figure out. Well, we all stink at it. We don't know how to do it. And it turns out that we were very pluralistic and tolerant about Judaism because we didn't really care about it. It just wasn't such a big deal. Oh, okay, so you don't keep Shabbos. That's not a big deal. I accept you. Oh, you don't want to keep kosher. That's okay, but it's not, it's not a good deal. But pluralism is not about accepting that. 
or the other which you think is insignificant. It's about caring for the individual and accepting that idea which aggravates you. We are far less skilled at pluralism and tolerance. We are far less liberal than we assumed we were. And in this new Judaism, part of us instinctively say we need post-denominationalism because we have to be together. Because that's the we need to unite. But if that post-denominationalism is going to create a Torah that nobody's going to want to choose to belong to, if it's not going to have any of the spirit of Maimonides, who has the chutzpah to get up and to say, this whole tradition has nothing to do with Lech Lecha. This whole tradition has nothing to do with God choosing you. It's about you choosing God. It's about you walking on a path of spiritual and intellectual excellence that you believe is worthy of you as a human being. If we're going to give multiple answers to that question, then we're going to have to dust off the Torah of pluralism and tolerance and begin to work on it. And it could be that the saving grace is going to be found in biblical Judaism. That the saving grace of ethnic consciousness, of a community who together with aspiring for more, together with pushing each other, pushing, to try to embody something that's profoundly worthwhile, does so in a spirit of significant non-dogmatism and non-judgmentalism. And it could be that that non-judgmentalism doesn't have to occur within your shul. It could just have to occur in your respect for the shul next door. As I said at the beginning, there is a sense that this is unprecedented. But through the categories and journey that I attempted to, to give um, expression to, Jews are reinventing themselves. Not simply today, throughout our history. Different philosophies of Judaism aren't just simply different expressions of what Torah means, but they're very often different definitions of what it means to be a Jew. Rabbinic Judaism created a new Jew. Maimonides yearned to create a new Jew. The modern era created with those same categories again a new Jew. And we're confronted in the yet again that unending journey. There is absolutely much to be worried about. There always is. There are many reasons to be pessimistic. There are many reasons to worry. You, Daniil, speak about a new Torah. Most Jews aren't showing up. Nobody knows how to reach the unreachables. If anybody did, it would be a tautological error. But we do know that most Jews aren't unreachables. They're out there. They're listening. They're watching. One of the reasons why they're unreachable is because we're not giving them something to reach for. And if we do, the unreachables will diminish. Instead of worrying about the future death of the Jewish people, instead of insulting people by saying, you're Jewish if your grandchildren will be Jewish, 
it's time for us to embrace the reality within which we find ourselves. A community which doesn't want to go back as it is going back. A community that's standing on the idea that Judaism is more than ethnicity, but still wants an ethnic consciousness. But at the same time, a community which needs to create and to push for greater heights in the Torah that it's created. And ultimately to find a way that as we give expression to our particular heights, we still have a sense of walking together. Who are the Jews? We don't really know. We've been at it for a long time. Using that past, we have the tools to challenge ourselves not to think in brand new categories, but to use those past categories, to use those past experiences, and to give us possibly new answers, new Torahs, so that we could again, maybe, begin to worry about Jewish continuity. Thank you. Now it'll be my pleasure to take um, questions for a few minutes, please. Yes, please. Loud. I would suggest to you that that is the smallest problem that we face today. And that answering it is going to take up so much energy. Let it go. Let go the conversation about who you want to exclude and start creating a Torah that people would want to join. Start creating. And again, I want to be very clear. When I'm talking about denominations, I'm not necessarily talking about the existing denominations and about the existing lines. Because we're not about sanctifying the present. We're not about sanctifying institutions. We're about sanctifying ideas of Torah that speak in multiple languages and terms to inspire different people. So, you know, I want to tell you, in 20 years' time, we'll get to that question. That'll be a question for 20 years from now, if we do our work. And if we don't do our work, it's going to be the most irrelevant question in the world. Because the issue will not be what are the boundaries between us and them, but whether there is even an us. And so the, the answer to your question is that it will require theoretical boundaries that I don't believe serve us well right now at a time when we need to do so much more work to each one of our denominations to ask, how do I as an orthodox, a conservative, a reformer, a reconstructionist, a renewal, post, whatever it is, secular, how do I, what is my Torah? Not what's wrong. What's my Torah? What's my new Torah? What were the boundaries or the principles that define my denomination that are no longer relevant? Am I speaking a Torah to the wrong people? Is my shul even a conservative shul? I don't care whether I belong to it or is it a reform. What is it? What are the principles that I care? How do we create new movements, new centers of particularism that maybe mirror in some places the past and sometimes breathe something new? That's what we, we need to concentrate on that. We have the potential to do it. You have the potential to do it. You have the content in the Torah to teach. If you have the, just go for it. 
Messianic Jews, 20 years' time. I'll be 75 at the time, and I'm planning to retire at 75. Let's talk about it right before I retire. Yes, please. If you could just stand, please, and I'll repeat the question. Okay. Um, let me, I, the question was, Daniil, how could you speak with such, in such positive terms about biblical ethnicity when the Bible itself speaks about wiping other ethnicities? There's lots of things about the Bible that I don't like. Lots of things I don't like. There's lots of things that Jews did that, that I don't like, and there's lots of things that God commanded that I don't like. There is, however, a Jewishness that emerges that teaches me something not the racial consequences of ethnic chosenness, but the ethnic consciousness of accepting other Jews despite and regardless of what they do. God, that's what God did. And it's very possible that one of the most significant messages and takeaways from the Bible is not the Ten Commandments, but that you shall love Jews who don't keep the Ten Commandments. Maybe we have to just turn the Bible on its head. Maybe we were reading it wrong. Maybe we were reading it as a book filled with sin and failure, and maybe the lesson was is that that sin and failure is something that we embody and encompass and go on. And I want to tell you, Jews for 3,000 years lived off of this. I know the negative side is a distinction between us and them and racism. That I, get, I don't celebrate that. The process of creating a new Judaism is always a selective one picking the chapter you love and ignoring the chapter you don't or reinterpreting the chapter you don't. But there's something about biblical Judaism which defines us. We're all there. It's like almost self-evident. Some Jews started to try to create a creed. Jews laughed at them. Any creed. Some test to get in or get, no, you're just in. That spirit is the spirit I celebrate, but I know very well that together with that, there's many negative things as well. That's part of that story. I, I don't deny that. Um, yes, please, sir. Uh, we'll do that in a few minutes, please. That will wait. Thank you. Um, yes, any other? Yes, please. Thank you. See, I put great emphasis on it, but I don't know if the Jews will. And Jewish unity and Jewish collective life is going to have to be something that is not a self-evident truth which people have to accept in order to be Jewish, but it has to be a consequence of something that we create. And it has to be something that if we create it with great beauty and depth, it will be alive. In this new world, you don't get to say... Judaism means, do you know what an argument against Judaism is in today's generation? If you say, Judaism is, knock yourself out, take it. Judaism is this, Judaism is, 
the, today a coherent argument is no. Judaism means to be committed to a collective and to live in the midst of a people. Don't think so. That's, that constitutes an argument. If Jewish people in unity is something that we care for, then let's create a community which acts like a people, acts unified, and people with a collective consciousness will want to join. We don't know what collective consciousness is going to mean over the next few decades. We don't know what belonging is going to mean. And all of you, the rabbis here and lay people who are on boards of synagogues, you know and you're struggling with. You know, your synagogue, which is one of the greatest synagogues in North America, sits down and says, there's going to be many ways in which there's seven gates to your, to your shul, right? There's seven. There isn't one way. And because you're knowing that what does it even mean to belong is not the same. You're a rabbi who gets up and says, I'm going to teach a Torah class before session, even though the people after my Torah session aren't going to come to shul. And I'm not going to fetch it. I'm not going to tell them, oops, that's a different way of belonging, and you're, set, you're recognizing that. Now, when you do that, you are making the case for Jewish people with ever having to talk about it. Because you're creating a space that somebody wants to belong to. You're creating a sense of unity which is not stifling, but a sense of unity that allows people to be a part of something while still feeling and recognizing who they are. So I don't know. I, it's true. I'm an old-timer. I'm an alta kaka. Many of you, too, shared that quality with me. <laughs> we are. We're the old-timers. We're the engaged, trying to figure out how we reach the unengaged and the marginally engaged. That's true. For us, Jewish collective life and unity are self-evident truths. It's for us to recognize that we can't just say it. It's for us to create a community that lives it. And when that happens, then we don't have to argue for it anymore. It just becomes something that you want to be a part of with all modern senses of self and these amorphic little virtual communities, people are still collecting in communal, in communal structures. I think our problem is that our communal structure is not compelling. It's not that we're arguing for the significance of a communal structure. We just have to switch the focus of our argument. Yes, please. And then, and then ma'am in the back, yes, please. Again, really, thank you for such a thoughtful question. Um, uh, should I repeat the question? Yes. Um, given the fact, and, 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 and if I didn't summarize it correctly, that your, both your analysis and I think you're, 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 you're concurring that in the United States, Jewish ethnicity is a passé quality. It's something that we don't even value anymore. What does that say about the relationship to the state of Israel, which is, still, which is a profoundly ethnic country? Um, and um, you've pointed to the fact that while there are non, that, that, that to be born a Jew means to have greater rights here than to be a non-Jew, um, I would give it a twist and say that here, it's tr in Israel, ethnicity is, Jewish identity is still profoundly ethnic. We are still in not just, actually in Israel we don't have an ethnic consciousness, we have ethnicity, <laughs> which is actually an interesting challenge. I'm going to leave slightly the issue of the attitude towards 
the non-Jewish minority here in Israel because that'll move me slightly outside of this lecture and I don't fully agree with the statement itself even though I, I, no, I have an aspiration. I think legally it ought not to be so. I think there's gaps between reality and aspiration. But, I, but that reality or dealing with that justly is a whole other lecture that I don't want to deal with. But it is, or tonight I can't. But it is true that on a much deeper level there is a huge gap between a community for whom ethnicity is just, it's, it's not even a value, and a community for whom it is still the primary definition of their Jewishness. Israeli Judaism and North American Judaism are profoundly different, but they're not different the way we thought they were. It's not different that in America we have denominations and in Israel we have secular and religious, or religious as a the key, one of the most significant realities of Israel is that this is still a clearly ethnic Jewish community. And that there is no impulse in Israeli society, for example, for multiple paths to conversion. It doesn't exist. There is no social push towards it. The only social push is to find a way to have a unified conversion under orthodoxy, which might be a little more accommodating. That's the only if you talk about a social energy, that's where Israeli society is. We're going to have a night where we're going to speak about a different place, and that has to do with marriages, but we'll talk about that at an, um, in a... Uh, the lay leaders heard a presentation on it, and um, the rabbis will hear next week. Um, but it's not simple. The relationship between Israel and world Jewry is going to be increasingly challenged precisely when we have very, very different levels of ethnicity, or di different consciousnesses. And Israelis, when they read the Pew Report, read it very, very differently than North American Jews. Tonight I was reading the Pew Report as to who are we and how do we see it as part of an ongoing conversation, what are the tools we use and how do we retrofit ourselves as we continue to reinvent ourselves. Israelis read the Pew Review and say, I told you you should have made Aliyah. Ma'am, in the back, yes, please. I have another answer I wanted to give. <laughs> um, yes, please, sir. The Rambam felt, what is the place of halakha in Maimonides' Judaism? The Rambam felt that halakha was a perfect tool to bring forth a society in which Jews would understand that Judaism is about ideas. The Rambam felt that halakha was a vehicle to both push for these ideas and to create a social structure in which that was possible. And so the Rambam wasn't schizophrenic, he loved halakha, but for him halakha was not an end, it was a means to create a Jew who worships God by yearning to be part of a larger conversation of ideas. Yes, please, at the back.
Why are we two stages ahead of the rest of America? Um, maybe because that's the way we always see ourselves. We need to be two stages ahead. Um, by the way, I, don't, I didn't, the conflation of ethnicity with particularism is not the same. Um, I don't think particularism is necessarily over. One of the things that you realize is that the choice of a spouse who's not Jewish might not necessarily be a universalist choice. It could be a particularist choice. It could be a choice to continue to create a Jewish family, but with a non-Jewish spouse who's choosing to become part of the Jewish people. So ethnicity and particularism aren't synonymous. Um, there's also no doubt that for every, every moment somebody gets up and declares the end of ethnic consciousness, within all of us, that ethnic consciousness reemerges. How it expresses itself, whether it expresses itself in our response to Jews of color or to individuals of color. And uh, there's, we're not so beyond those categories. But the category that seems to be pretty irrelevant in the Jewish community is being born Jewish. That story, we've sort of, we've really removed. Um, um, and I, I wasn't talking about America, I was talking about the Jewish community. But that story is not a non-particularistic story. The majority of Jews, 80% of Jews say they're proud to be Jewish. Now what does that mean? There's a particular, Pew is not a study or a survey about the universalism of the Jewish community. There's a profound particularism embedded within much of that's of going on there. Social justice is not a universalist category necessarily, as my colleague Yehuda has taught me over and over and over again. People could be picking a universalist social justice tikkun olam ideology for particularist reasons. In other words, we're the story on this issue of particulars and universalism, is, it, it's not the same, and it, and it requires more and a more subtle conversation and discussion. Why we're so more advanced than the rest of the people? I, for one, tend to believe that that's the proper place for us to usually find ourselves. <laughs> like, and when we're not there, that's when we really have to worry. <laughs> I think there was, yes, please, Ed. <laughs> First of all, Ed, since I've always been an optimist, just like you, that's why we're friends. You can't be a rabbi or a teacher if you're not an optimist. I actually don't think that Maimonides thought that it was only for him. And I think the essential feature of my, of my father's writing on Maimonides is to show that this notion of a Judaism of ideas is not the Judaism of the guide for the perplexed, but it's the Judaism of the Mishnah Torah. And the text that I read from is the Mishnah Torah. I don't read from the guide for the perplexed. This is his introduction to the laws of idolatry meant for every single Jew. Not only meant for them, this is the book that Maimonides has the chutzpah to say, don't read Torah anymore, and you really don't have to study that much more Talmud, just read me. And what he wanted you to read was this. Now, Maimonides' mistake was not, I don't think he thought that it was only for him, but I think his mistake was to think that the Judaism he was thinking of could actually be a Judaism of, ma of, of masses of people. 
I don't think there's going to be one Judaism. And when I speak about a Judaism of ideas, I don't just speak about a Judaism of, 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 of pure truths and Aristotelian um, pure ideas. There might be a Judaism where the idea, and, and each one of us, you know, there might be a Judaism of ritual and spirituality. It might be a Judaism in which joy and dance. There might be a Judaism of study. There might be a Judaism of, of multiple different aspects. And I'm not picking one, but it can't just be food. Cul it's not a culinary Judaism in that. It needs, what Maimonides says is if you want to build a particular Judaism, aim high. Aim for something that's going to inspire somebody. Aim for something that's going to say to people, yes, what could bring me together is not who my parents slept with and who gave birth to me. It's not because God chose me 3,000 years ago, but because I get up in the morning and I choose you. Now, what is it that I choose? Part of my optimism grows out of the fact that I don't want to limit, unlike my money, I don't want to limit it to one. I don't want to, there are multiple things that you could choose. Now, if we offer those, the reason why I'm an optimist is because I watch your shul. I look at your shul. What do you do? What's the magic that you do? You offer something serious. You offer people a way to look at Judaism as something larger that will shape their life, touch their life, enrich their life. And you're busier than you ever were before in the midst of the unprecedented, catastrophic reality of Jewish life. I'm optimistic because I know lots of you. I remember, oh, they used to talk about BJ, BJ, BJ. Do you remember? 30 years ago, BJ is a great shul, great rabbis, love them. They still have a fundamental role. But every one of you knows. You're a shul, like, oh, how many great shuls are there in America? doesn't mean that every shul is great. But is BJ now the only shul in America innovating new creative? I hope I'm not insulting anybody. And I'm not, it's like, thank God. Look what we've all done. Look how many great shuls. And we're showing that when we offer something, people come. So I'm optimistic because of you. But I know that in many ways, you are an embodiment of Maimonides. You're an embodiment of a denominational idea which says that I don't have to be everything for everybody. And I don't have to be something that anybody who wants to come in could come into. Not at all. I, Ed Feinstein, stand for this. And I'm going to teach this. And come walk with me. And when you do that, people come. How do we take that, and instead of saying that you're passé, Instead of saying that the new reality of Jewish life is Ed Feinstein, get over yourself, that's a dying model. We need now have to have, we have to find a Jewish beer party. Because it's only in a Jewish beer party that we're going to reach the unreachables. And everything that you stand for is not yesterday's Torah. I would argue that that's the Torah of tomorrow. Last question and then we'll conclude. Yes, please. I have no idea. The truth is, I'm really, you know, <laughs> I'm looking, I'm, it's not a new Judaism at all. I'm actually correcting myself, and I'm saying that instead of trying to find a new Judaism, let's stop trying to find a new Judaism. 
Let's stop trying to create a post-denominational. Let's stop making sure that Jewish unity should push us to give up our particularity. Let's celebrate our particularity more than ever before, but not as an expression of yesterday. This is the, it's not saying, oh, let's hold on to particularity because we've worked on it so long. Let's hold on to our denominations because we have so many buildings. It's to understand that inherent with to a new Torah is a new Torah which expresses itself in particular language. I don't know what's going to be common, and it could very well be that there won't be enough in common, and there might not be one Jewish people. Very possible. Very possible that some of our old truths are like chickens whose head have been cut off and we just no one gave them the message yet. They're still hobbling around. I don't know. I would love there to be core shared principles. I just can't dictate them. They're going to have to evolve from the Torahs that we all create and then we're going to see. We're going to turn to the left and we're going to turn to the right and we're going to say, oops, is there something shared? Because it's going to be harder. When you have a shared ethnicity, you have that safety net. Before modernity, you could say to someone, you don't like it, doesn't matter, have more. No, it doesn't matter, shut up, it's not about you. We're living in a time where it is about me. It is about me. And we're going to hopefully find ways to create pods of me, individual pockets of meaning. And then we're going to sit down and say, so what's the relationship between them? But the story, I know, but the story is going to be in the reverse. It's not going to be us setting forth like God the Ten Commandments which people are either going to keep or not keep. The story is going to have to evolve much more naturally as different Jews are going to have to find ways for themselves to connect to, to decide that they want to be part of this unending journey. As the evening began, um, I received notice that unfortunately it seems that the three boys um, were killed. Um, I decided to honor them by continuing to teach Torah. Um, the Jewish people um, are going to mourn tomorrow. Um, the Jewish people, however, are still alive. And um, they didn't die on some great battlefront. They didn't die on some great heroic moment. They died simply because they want to be children. Who could do sometimes what children do? In the Jewish people that we yearn to be a part of and in the state of Israel that we yearn to be a part of, that act should be a self-evident act. And, um, and unfortunately, it's not there yet. Unfortunately, as we talk about the big challenges facing Jewish life, there's also small challenges. And there's three families today whose lives are changed forever. Uh, Adonai <laughs> Nachlatam, we are Nuchu Bishalom, Al Mishkavam, 
Then of our almighty God, source of life and author of death, grant perfect peace in your presence, in the presence of the holy and the great, and the pure and the simple and the good, in the presence of all who have gone before to fight for Am Yisrael, Kedushat Yisrael, Adonai, the God of Israel, to the soul of three children who were taken from this world brutally. May God rest them completely in the presence of the angels and the holy ones. May their families find holiness and peace in the presence of Am Yisrael who prays for them cries for them and holds them dear. May Am Yisrael be comforted in the courage and strength in the wholeness and peace that all of us feel as we hold each other. Fatem Israel, Tadima, Ayn Lutzion, Sophia, Odlov, Tikvatenu, Atik Bachnot Alpayim, Liotam Hofshi Behatenu. Zion, Yerushalayim, Liotam Chavshi, Be'arzenu,